Well, hello and uh, welcome again to our Learn to Read the Bible Effectively seminar. Uh, this is week four already, the six weeks, and uh, we've got some really interesting things to look at uh, today. Just a, a quick reminder, last week in week three, we really um, sp sped up the process of, of learning to read the Bible effectively, looking at uh, some study tools like the concordance and the lexicon that allows us to uh, check out the meanings of words in their original language, which is really helpful if we want to read effectively and, and really explore the Bible with uh, a key uh, with an intent to understand what was what was intended. Uh, by the original authors in their original context in their original languages and and how that relates to us today. And then we looked at cross-references, which is uh, something that many Bibles have either in the center of the of the column of of text or maybe at the bottom like a as a footnote. And those cross-references help us to find echoes and find connections uh, between um, uh, between the various accounts and and parts of the Bible because as we, sincerely believe the Bible from Genesis to Revelation has been inspired by God. It's his words to us, uh, certainly uh, without error in its original languages. And, and we really just need to worry about, um, you know, translator bias and that kind of thing, which is, is what we're going to look at a little bit um, today. But those cross-references help us to get a biblical definition of, of what uh, words and concepts are there. And of course, using the concordance in that lexicon, allowing us to check the original languages um the the workshop last week i hope you did it it was on the temptations of christ and i, I hope you found that interesting to use cross references to find out you know where he was coding from when he answered those temptations and and how that can help us in in our walk today and uh if you didn't get a chance to do that have a look at those they're they're posted uh wherever you found this video um, and, and we'll do the same with, uh, with this week four. We'll, we'll post the slides, we'll post the notes, and we'll post the homework slash workshop. Well, our first section um, today is entitled Critics of the Bible. And, and really, we just need to acknowledge that uh, because the Bible is uh, such an influential book, you know, the number one bestseller year after year after year, because of the uh, amazing claims it makes to, to be God's inspired word, it is therefore going to draw a lot of attention to itself. And, and those, those critics uh, are there. We can see from this cover from Time magazine a number of years ago. Uh, it says, you know, is the Bible fact or fiction? A question which um, many people ask. And uh, perhaps you've thought of some of these things yourself, or uh, you've had friends that have, have questioned the Bible and its authenticity. But we don't, in the few short minutes we're going to spend on it today, we're not going to be able to answer these claims extensively, but uh, hopefully at least uh, point you in the right direction. So um, perhaps the first criticism, there's no particular order here, but as it came to our mind making this up, uh, would be something along these lines. You know, the Bible is an ancient document written by primitive men who are only trying to force their own will on others by claiming a book of divine origin. So the claims made here in 2 Timothy 3.16 about being God's word breathed by him, or in, in Peter, where the epistle of Peter says, you know, the holy men of old wrote, you know, not of their own and private interpretation, but as they were born along uh, with the spirit of God. There, the, the criticism would be, well, that's just people saying that. Um, so really, the Bible is nothing more than a compilation of crude facts, fiction, folklore, and legend. Um, if you've been following along on the, the homework worksheets, uh, the, 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 there's going to be five of the six that have on them 
proofs to the fact that the Bible is God's inspired word. And uh, there's lots of information on those worksheets if you want to check those out. But briefly, this criticism can be proved by things like archaeology, which, you know, they dig up um, uh, things that that verify what's in Scripture. So it's an accurate account of, of history, um, geology, history, and so on. In other words, there are physical, tangible sciences that can be um, applied to the claims of, of the Bible to verify that they are, in fact, true, and that only God could have made um, such predictions. Um, uh, related to this, uh, criticism number two here, the claim of the Bible to be an inspired revelation is an out-of-date concept in the light of scientific progress. We've got scientific in quotes there, of course. Uh, this is sort of the popular uh, idea and, and concept of, you know, the advancement of science. Moreover, the predictions made in the Bible could have occurred due to coincidence or natural phenomena. And here's this passage in Peter that we quoted earlier. You know, it's not men's private interpretation, but they were moved by the Holy Spirit or carried along. It was God speaking through them. And again, we can check out the prophecy. You know, is what the Bible said would happen? Did it come to pass? If that's the case, then things that haven't yet come to pass, we can uh, um, hope we can be confident that it will be fulfilled in the near future. And we see that, especially when we think of the events in the world today, um, you know, in the Middle East and so on, that the, that, that turmoil, those, those things that are happening there were predicted in the Bible and are leading towards the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to the earth to establish God's kingdom. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in our next section on the purpose of God revealed. And, um, you know, a fair application of scientific methods and principles. The, the Bible doesn't claim to be in a scientific textbook, for example, but there's nothing in there that would contradict uh, what we know to be true and fair science. In fact, one of the um, proofs we have on one of the, the worksheets uh, is the is rather than being an out-of-date concept, out-of-date ideas in the Bible are actually quite advanced. So that uh, even the time of Moses, uh, many of the, the 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 commands that God gives for healthy living, um, far uh, out, out um, were far ahead of their time in terms of cleanliness and and uh, how to organize your camp and, and keep yourself safe and health, healthy without any knowledge of of microbiology and germs and so on shows that that God must have have known that. Um, so if you're interested in some of those things, you can pursue those further with the, some of the links and the notes that we have on the the the, uh, the worksheets criticism number three even if the bible were originally the inspired word of god like languages concept revision constant revision etc would remove any hope of using the bible as a standard of life for all mankind and um interesting this is an interesting criticism it's saying okay yeah it might have been god's word but in in the meantime so many thousands of years have passed it's probably changed so much how could it possibly how can we have confidence that it's an accurate translation and so on and again, we'll talk about that a little bit in our next section, um, actually in our, our last section uh, today on the, the versions of the Bible. So here, you know, Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, God spoke at various times in various ways to the fathers in the past, but that's sort of a long time ago. And we have here some um, um, pictures of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And um, basically, we can disprove this criticism by, by checking out these things. Again, it's, it's overlapping here with some of the things we said before about archaeology and so on. But here, if we look at those bibliographical tests uh, about these things uh, that were found, in particular the Dead Sea Scrolls, that can give us confidence once again that what we're reading today in English 
uh, is, is very, very close to what was intended and what was written in the original language thousands of years ago. So just a little bit of an aside, this is interesting. We'll go through this relatively quickly. There'll be a lot of information in these next few slides. And, and if we do go too quickly, you can, of course, stop the video and, and read them. And these everything that's here is in the notes and on the, the PDF of the slide. So um, don't, don't worry if I go a little more quickly, uh, then you can follow along there. We've mentioned in previous seminars that the Old Testament is primarily written in Hebrew, a little bit, a bit of Aramaic. Uh, obviously, there were no printing presses then, so how were these things um, copied from, from generation to generation? Um, and in during that copying, we see here a, a scribe copying out uh, the, the text. Um, how can we be sure that they didn't make mistakes? Well, um, as we mentioned here, it was the job of the scribes to copy out the Old Testament onto scrolls of parchment or animal hides and, and later into to books or papyrus. Um, and it was, it was, there was an incredible amount of care taken. And we'll just look at a couple of, one example of, of a, of a group of scribes that we know we have record now of, of what they did and how, how careful they were. Um, this was in about 900 AD, but this is just typical of what's been happening for uh, many thousands of years. Uh, a group of Jews were known, known as Masoretes, and they had a number of highly, uh, a number of precise rules when copying, and uh, it was unlikely that any errors crept in. And I've just got them listed here. This is just incredible. Um, they had to, to to carefully rule their lines. Um, the ink had to be black. Um, each line was to contain exactly thirty letters, so they would know if they'd made a mistake. Because if they're copying another one, got twenty nine. They're like, oh, what letter did I miss? They could go back and check. Um, Rows and columns were lined up in, in the text uh, so that there was a visual. If something was missing, you could visually see something was wrong. Um, this is interesting. Number five, no letter or word was to be written from memory. They had to like, like literally copy it out, checking, 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 checking. They couldn't just say, oh, I know how to spell that word and, and, and potentially make an error. Um, they spoke the words aloud before copying them. That's an interesting little um, maybe idea for us, we've, we've said that for reading the word, a tip for reading is to read aloud because you you hear it as well. So that helps in this case in the copying process. And it's a good good study uh, aid for those studying for tests and whatnot. Speak aloud the words, don't just write out your notes. When you're reviewing them, speak them aloud and and, and get them fresh in your, in your memory. Um, it was care carefully checked using words and letter counts and the entire scroll was checked by somebody else. So uh, that's just an idea of, of how, you know, confident we can be that things were uh, accurately transcribed. Now, how did how, how can we verify that? Well, in the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in, in uh, 1947, interestingly, just at the same time when the birth of the, of the modern nation of Israel happened. I don't think that's coincidence. And at that time, amongst all the scrolls that they found in these caves in, in the Qumran area of the Dead Sea in Israel, um, they found about 18, eight, sorry, 800 different manuscripts. Uh, since then, they found originally there's just a couple. And these, these texts were a thousand years older than the, the next oldest manuscript. So it, it, it backed up to long before the, the birth of Christ, uh, some of the earliest now manuscripts we had. And the, the manuscripts, there were fragments of every scripture, every single Old Testament book, except for Esther. And, um, they found entire books of some of the of some of the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, 
Um, in particular, they found um, the entire book of, of Isaiah. And although these Dead Sea Scrolls are about 2,000 years old now, more than that, actually, um, they uh, they found any, when they were compared with the Masoretic text, so there's a thousand year gap in between there. Um, you can see here that uh, it was between one, they're about between 150 and uh, 250 um well 150 bc to 250 ad that was the range of the of the books that they found when they compared them to those masoretic texts of 900 ad there was hardly any difference at all um in fact the entire isaiah scroll was found and when they compared them word for word from what we have today um from the masoretic text texts there was only 13 places where they had to make a change um and those were all very very minor so again what are we saying here simply that we can be confident that the the english text we have today uh is is um accurate when compared to what would have been originally written in in hebrew and greek all those years ago now the new testament obviously is a bit not not as old only two thousand years ago was the new testament written and there's lots and lots of manuscripts so we have a lot to compare from and we can compare all those different manuscripts from different places in the world where the new testament was uh, was uh, saved in in monasteries and churches and so on and we can compare them all and see what they're like um and this is what uh, this uh, professor ff F. bruce from the university of manchester wrote and uh this is again just an expert's opinion on what we can think about those those new testament um, texts the evidence for our new testament writings is ever so much greater than the evidence for many writings of classical authors the authenticity of which no one dreams of questioning you know and we'll look at some of those in a minute um and if the new testament were a collection of secular writings their authenticity would generally be regarded as beyond all doubt but again, because the claims made by the New Testament that this is the life of Jesus, he is the son of God, they were inspired to write these things. Because of those claims, the critics are more numerous as well. He's saying if, if, the, if the New Testament were just any other book of, from that time, the writings from that time, the authenticity would, would not be questioned at all. So here's some examples. Uh, just to understand this chart, basically here's some of these classical writings, you know, the writings of Caesar or Plato or Herodotus or Aristotle or Homer. Here's when they were written. Here's the earliest copy we have of it. And then the time span. So the writings of Caesar, we know Caesar existed historically. He lived from 100 to 44 BC. He wrote stuff down. The earliest copy we have is about 900 AD. So there's a thousand years between when he wrote and the earliest copy we have. And we only have 10 copies of the writings of Caesar. And so on. Plato, you can see the difference. So the, the time span here is in the thousands or certainly hundreds of years and the number of copies are very very few homer being the exception there's only 500 years between when he wrote and the earliest copy we have um, and we have 643 copies of the writings of homer well let's slide up the bible under this these same columns written in between 40 and 100 a.d the earliest copy is 125 a.d so there's only a 25 year gap between what was written and what we have a copy from and there's 24,000 copies in the New Testament. So we don't need to be worried about the authenticity. No one was able to change it. Maybe there's one found in Alexandria, another one in Rome. They're the same. No one changed them. The, the, the differences are only minor, transcribal errors or, or a bit of bias in a translator. That's it. 
Other than that, we can be very confident that these were the actual words that were written. Uh, criticism number four here. Um, if the men who wrote the Bible were inspired by God, why are there different accounts of the same event? Should not the accounts recorded be identical and not in seeming contradiction? Um, so, you know, we think of the, the gospel accounts, for example, or the Kings and Chronicles accounts, or, you know, shouldn't there be any, if, if, if it's all God is the author, why aren't they exactly identical accounts? Well, for one thing, that would be redundant to have them if they were identical. And uh, we would expect that as men wrote, uh, they saw things from a slightly different perspective. And although they were guided by God to write, they had their own personality coming through. You can tell the difference between, you know, the writings of John and the writings of of Peter and the writings of Paul. They were different men. And although God was uh, in, uh, inspiring them to write and they were writing without error, uh, they had their own perspective, their own style. Um, and as John mentioned at the end of their Gospels here, uh, if we wrote down everything Jesus did in the state of hyperbole, so the world even wouldn't contain the book. So what was chosen to be uh, recorded, uh, divinely inspired by God, uh, is just uh, enough of what we need to know. So um, we can disprove this by, if we just look at the facts, the harmony of the facts, the harmony of the Gospels, there is one consistent message. There may be nuances of difference in perspective, uh, because they're looking at the same incident from a different angle, but there's a constant message. And the different accounts actually give credibility and also proximity to events. Luke uh, was, uh, he, he would have, we, we, we think, probably got some a lot of his information and accounts from other of the apostles. He wasn't one of the 12, those sorts of things. So although he's getting it secondhand, he's still being into, um, guided by God to write accurate things. Um, so for example, let's just look at the, this is a, a simple little, uh, apparent contradiction. Um, what was written above Jesus? And here's a, you know, uh, you know, it was written in, in Greek and Latin and Hebrew. So here, here we are, the, all four account, gospel accounts record that something was written above Jesus. In, in Matthew, it says, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. That's what was written above the cross, according to Matthew. Uh, Mark says, it said, this is uh, the, the king of the Jews. Luke says, this is the king of the Jews. And John says, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. They all say what was written above Jesus' head on the cross that Pilate had written, that the Pharisees wanted taken down. And Pilate said, what I've written, I've written. It's done. He wanted it to be a testimony to what he knew to be the truth. So we might say, well, look, there's what was written. You know, we got four different accounts and they're all different which is true, I mean, they all had one common thing. They all said the king of the Jews, which was the main point being made, um, but it seems there's something a little bit different. And the harmony would be probably the sign said, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And each writer wrote, you know, kind of what they saw, what they were trying to highlight. John seems to want to emphasize that it's Jesus of Nazareth. Um, most of all of them wanted to say it's the king of the Jews. Matthew wanted to mention his name is Jesus. Um, that's not a contradiction. In fact, that's what we would expect. And this is a long quote that I am going to read through, but uh, this is a very interesting um, author, this man, uh, Warner Wallace, J. Warner Wallace. He wrote a book called Cold Case Christianity. It's actually a website. You can check it out. Uh, he's, been, he's been featured in, in, in different movies. Um, and he, is, he started off as a, a non-believer, he is uh, an, um, a, a criminal investigator, forensic science, 
and he wanted to apply what he did in life in his everyday life to what's written in the Bible about Jesus. And it, he intended to, to um, prove it false. Just so they didn't stand up to the scrutiny that they would use in forensic science today. And he, he actually found out the exact opposite and he became a Christian. And uh, this is his testimony here. So this is just a quick quote uh, from, from a, a really interesting book. He says, he said, sometimes when we read parallel accounts of the same event, we seem to find minor contradictions in the way the event is described. We've got to be careful not to confuse differences in perspective with biblical error. Remember, no two witnesses to the same event will ever describe the event in exactly the same way. If the witnesses did describe the event in exactly the same way, you would probably question their honesty, which is interesting. If they were identical, it would seem more contrived. You know, if you're two witnesses to a car accident and you said, this guy says it and this guy says exactly the same thing, direction, colors, people, who was there. It sounds like a contrived story that they've memorized and rehearsed. So the, the subtle differences actually lend credibility. That's Warner Wallace's point here. The original assemblers of the scripture could easily have changed the differing accounts after the fact, so they all said the same thing. Or they could simply have formed one large gospel, including a single story of Jesus, and then destroyed all the competing accounts. But that's not what they did. Instead, they left us with all four eyewitnesses accounts so we could get all the different differing perspectives. These differences are not the result of error. They are simply the result of perspective. So I think that's helpful. And I think that would apply to any of the so-called contradictions that some critics would claim are there in the Bible. An honest, careful reading would see that's simply not the case. So hopefully that's helped with, uh, you know, just a, a brief overview of some of the criticisms that are made um, about scripture and pointed you in the right direction to have a good answer both for yourself and maybe for those who ask you about some of these contradictions. We'll move on then to our second section. I'll have to pick up the pace just a little bit, the purpose of God revealed. Uh, again, this might be a question that, that you've thought of or that uh, your friends or neighbors asked, why did God even create man in the first place? Um, what was the divine motive? Uh, why did God create the earth and its inhabitants? Um, and and the uh, the answer is is many places in scripture, obviously, but this is one of the, the best known ones. Numbers 14, 21. But as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. And Revelation 4, verse 11, similar words. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. So the Bible, in its entirety, from Genesis to Revelation, we see there's, there's um, a consistent message. And so really, when God created a perfect paradise in the Garden of Eden, that's what we see is going to result in the earth. It will be a paradise again. It will be restored and Genesis speaks of a tree of life and and flowing waters and 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 there's this connection these these bookends and in between is well once sin entered the world how do we get back to that paradise that get back to the garden if you will and and that's God's purpose is to fill this earth with His glory um, Isaiah forty five says this uh, thus saith the Lord that created the heavens God Himself that formed the earth and made it. He has established it. He didn't create it in vain. He had a purpose with it. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord. There is none else. Um, and from these verses, then we learn God created the earth to be inhabited. Those inhabitants were created for the glory of God. 
His purpose involves filling the earth with his glory. Now, we see a world today that is not filled with God's glory. There's violence and tumult and immorality and, and all kinds of things, war and destruction and, and abuse. That's not God's intention. And so we believe that a time is coming when Jesus will return and he will restore the earth uh, to its, its, its perfectness uh, and its beauty. And if you remember... This is exactly what uh, we looked at when we looked at those promises to Abraham uh, way back in the very first class, uh, that the land which he saw was going to be given to him and to his seed forever, and he was to walk in that land. And so it was very tangible. It was very real. It was, it, God had a purpose with this earth, the terra firma, if you will. And although uh, it's being abused and things have, have gone because of sin, have gone off the rails, God is going to restore all that. And of course, we saw in Galatians chapter 3 that that seed to which this land was promised was primarily the Lord Jesus Christ. And, uh, and, and although Abraham had many descendants and they lived in that land, they weren't there forever. They were not there for thousands of years. They've come back to the land in, in, in modern times. Uh, but it's still not a fulfillment of these promises because Jesus hasn't come back yet to claim that inheritance. And... Um, we know and can see from these verses here in Hebrews 11 and Galatians chapter 3 that it's waiting, that God's promises are waiting uh, for us, for you and for me. Uh, the end of Hebrews, Hebrews 11 is all about those faithful men and women of old. These all, including Abraham, obtained a good testimony through faith, but they didn't receive the promises. They died in faith, not having received the promises. Why? God has provided something better for us that they should not be made perfect apart from us. There's a time coming in the future when Jesus returns, when all will be raised and gathered and given immortality at the same time. And it also goes back to those promises made to Abraham. We can become part of Abraham's seed if we're baptized into Christ. And, and so it fits perfectly, this harmony of scripture from the beginning to the end, that God is going to fill this earth with people who are obedient to him, He's going to give us a corrupt, an incorruptible body. He's going to take away this corruptible body, put on incorruption, this mortal body, put on immortality. And we'll have a body like Jesus after his resurrection that could no longer be tempted and is fully uh, giving glory and honor to God. Well, that might then beg the question, what is God's glory? Well, fortunately, uh, Moses asked this question uh, way back in, in Exodus chapter 33, God said to Moses, I will do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, uh, and I know you by name. And, and Moses said, show me your glory. You know, what is your glory? I mean, we might think of a beautiful earth. We might think of like the picture there of, you know, the, 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 the light from heaven. And, you know, and, and that's all true. The earth will be restored. It will be a paradise again. Do you remember what that Jesus said to the, the believing thief? He gave him the assurance that he would be with him in paradise. So this, this coming kingdom will be a paradise on earth, Eden restored. But is it more than that? And, and so Moses says, show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. So God's glory is not just like a fantastic light or a beautiful earth. It is those things, but it's God's goodness, his, his character. And look what he says. I'm going to proclaim my name to you. And the fact that I'm going to be gracious to him, I will be gracious. So it has to do with compassion and 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 grace and God's goodness, God's character. This is all bound up in God's name. 
So his glory, his goodness, his name, his grace, his compassion, that's what this earth is going to be filled with. The knowledge of the glory of God will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. And so in the very next chapter, this is the famous chapter where God reveals himself to Moses and, and God uh, and God you know, covers Moses so he, he can actually see his glory, uh, probably revealed in, in, in an angel that's bearing God's name and glory. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And this is what he said. This was his name. Remember, his glory, his goodness, and his name are all combined. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is God's glory. And this is the, the world that's coming. There will be, yes, justice. God's righteousness will require judgment to put down all the things that are evil and wrong. But ultimately, it will be to, to manifest this amazing glory of God. And this is all bound up in God's name. Now, you may not have known that God knew that God has a name. You know, we call him God. We call him Lord. Um, there's all kinds of titles that we ascribe to the greatness of God. But he actually has a name. Here it is in Hebrew, these four letters, the Tetragrammaton. Um, it's it's usually in, in many translations when it's all capitalized, L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's a clue from the translators that this is God's name. It's actually the word Yahweh. Some say Jehovah. Um, some Bibles have Yahweh or Jehovah or Yah in the name. It's, it's at the end of the word like hallelujah, praise Yah, hallelujah, Yahweh is is probably the best anglicized version. It's a little bit different, obviously, in Hebrew, if you speak it with a Hebrew um, accent. But it basically means I will be who I will be. Remember, he had said, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. Remember that up here? I will proclaim the name of Yahweh. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. That's that's the idea here in this name. Um, and of course, we read in Matthew chapter 6 in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And so we have this name of God that, that is embodies his character. The Lord God, gracious and merciful, long-suffering, forgiving. This is all bound up in his name, I will be. And, and it's interesting. This is uh, something that's come to light uh, to my attention just recently. This name Yahweh is is really the, what we do when we breathe. You can imagine breathing in Yahweh. It's, it's saying God's name. Just in every, every breath we take, literally. God, Adam, when he breathed, when God breathed into his nostrils a breath of life, he would have he would have said God's name. Um, and, and that's that's really just beautiful that uh even those that don't know God are, are speaking his name with every breath they take. So in suffer, summary, we are uh we are created in God's image and for his glory. His desire, his desire is satisfied in a creation who willingly chooses to manifest his thoughts and ways, filling God's earth with his glory. And we do that as best we can in our own little sphere of influence we have in our life. We try and be good examples to be God-like, to be Christ-like, to show forth forgiveness and mercy and grace. Ultimately, that's the earth will be populated with people, immortal beings who will do that. Um, it's been only done once in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, but it will be uh, completely uh, filled with his glory uh, when Jesus returns to the earth. 
We come on then to our next section on study tools. A quick recap here. We looked at the concordance that helps us find words and phrases. Um, Bible dictionaries can give background information. Atlases, uh, the, the workshop for today, the homework for, for this week, looks at Bible atlases and, and uh, the geography and topology of the land. History books can fill in some of the details about the context of the, when those biblical events took place. And of course, commentaries. There's many commentaries out there where people who have studied uh, give their opinion and insight. And so there's lots of study tools. Of course, anything like this that's that's not the inspired word of God uh, has the potential of bias. So we just need to be careful. Uh, they can fill in some insights for us and give us some guidance. But remember, it's it's only the words of men. And we should never place total confidence in the writings of uninspired men. And that goes for anything that I'm saying in this video uh, don't take my word for it. Check it out. Remember, if it's not in the word, it's not of the Lord. And uh, so just keep that in mind. Um, just some of the things. This is a booklet that we've put together that we can make available to you. Um, this is Getting Through the Bible in, in a Year. It's the Bible Reading Planner. And we've put some things in there. For example, this timeline of the patriarchs. Um, quite interesting. Um, just to lay it out, we're, we're given all these, uh, you know, fantastic ages that people lived, um, and we kind of can line them up in a timeline and allows us to ask questions like this. Did did Noah get to meet Adam in person? Well, we look and, and here's Noah and we can see Adam died. He just missed. You know, so no, Noah wouldn't have known Adam personally, but his father and his grandfather did. That's pretty amazing. So we think about the faith that Noah had. He would have had direct contact through his father to the first man who ever lived. You want to know what happened in Eden? We get to read it in Genesis 1, 2, 3, and 4. Um, Adam would have been able to tell uh, Lamech and Methuselah, Noah's father and grandfather. Um, how long did, was it until the flood came? Well, we can see from here, it's about 1,650 years to the flood. So there's a quite a bit of time in there before the flood comes. It's not as though, and it's only in Genesis 6 that we're reading about it. But that's been, you know, over 1,600 years. Um, interesting, you know, when the flood came, whom died? We can see that uh, both Noah's father and grandfather died. Methuselah is particularly interesting because his name means when he dies, it shall come. And so he was a living prophecy of, of uh, God's judgment upon the earth in the time of, of, uh, of Noah. And here we think about Abraham. How, where did Abraham's faith come from? Well, it's possible that Abraham would have known Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They were still alive in his time his time period. And, you know, we don't know where people lived and where they moved. Get some idea of that in Genesis chapter 10. Um, but it's possible that Abraham was able actually to talk to Shem and hear all about. Um, in fact, he might have even met Noah himself. And so where did his faith come from? How did he know about God? He might have had a direct account from those, you know, the people that were restarting the earth over after the flood. Um, there's this map here. And again, there's maybe maps in the back of your Bible. You can look at a map and it just kind of fills in some of the details uh, that you would have, you know, as you're reading through. So um, here's Jerusalem here. What's some, what are some of the well-known towns that are in around Jerusalem? Well, there's Bethany, there's Jericho, there's Bethlehem. Those are all kind of in the southern part of the nation of Israel at the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, quite often, Jesus is going from Jerusalem to Nazareth. This is where he was born up here. 
you can see the scale there's 20 miles so what one two three maybe as the crow flies maybe 60 miles quite longer over the the roads you can i guess in these modern days you can actually google it and get google to tell you how far it is to walk and how long it's going to take you i think it's a bit more than 60 miles um because you can't go as the crow flies but if you're going straight it's about that um well now that we're up here in nazareth nazareth where he was born uh, sorry not where he grew up he was born in bethlehem obviously way down here but uh, joseph and mary took him up to nazareth and this is where jesus grew up up near the sea of galilee what are some of the towns there well we've got cana capernaum magdala that's where mary of magdalene comes from um and jesus has quite a bit of work here in the decapolis that's where he heals legion well oh i didn't know that it was actually on this east side of the jordan river you know, a lot of the activity of the New Testament is here on the in the, on the west side of the Jordan. But Legion comes from the Decapolis, so they would they would take a boat across the Sea of Galilee, and Bethsaida's up here in Gennesaret. And um, again, just some interesting things that it brings the story alive. We want to read the Bible effectively. You're reading through the Gospels. Oh, have a map there so you can see where Jesus is, where he's going, how long that might have taken, who else might have been there, and so on. Um, this is a really, really valuable chart. It's right in the middle of this booklet. Um, again, you can get copies of this and I just reach out to us. Uh, this is mostly if you're reading in the, the, the Kings and Chronicles accounts. Um, and, and again, you can, it's, it's a little bit complicated to get the hang of it. It goes all the way across here and then picks up down here. So you can see it's like 900 uh, BC here, all the way to there, the early 600s. And it picks up down here. You've got the northern kingdom of Israel here in the in the yellow. The southern kingdom lasts a bit longer in the green. Uh, you've got the, the major empires here in red. And interleaved here are all the prophets in the books. And whether they were appealing mostly to the southern kingdom of Judah or the northern kingdom of Israel and so on. So lots of kind of questions. So who was the first king of Israel? Well, it's Jeroboam after Solomon and David and Saul who reigned over the United Kingdom of Israel, then when it split after Solomon between Jeroboam and Rehoboam, Rehoboam had the southern kingdom of Judah, and Jeroboam had the northern kingdom of Israel. So a bit of a trick question there. Um, it's about 200 years um, from after Solomon to the last king. It's not a long period of time before it goes from like the pinnacle under David and Solomon to like complete destruction under Zedekiah. Um, during the time of Ahab and the time of Jehu is, is, is Elijah. So like, oh, when you're reading about Elijah, it's, it's a lot to do with Ahab. Um, then you get some Syrian kings. This guy's name's Haziel. Uh, Sargon is the one who came. And again, these are just random questions I picked. And uh, Amos and Hosea are primarily appealing to the northern kingdom of Israel. And, and as you're thinking about that, okay, that makes sense now why they're being maybe over... Uh, you know, critical here because Israel, the north, the king, kings in the north were all wicked. Um, whereas in the south, at least there were some good kings and some bad kings. So if you see a prophet um, particularly appealing to the north, then he's going to have a lot of harsh things to say to those kings who weren't even worshiping properly. You know, with the, the golden calf, they were worshiping in the one in Dan and the one in, in uh, Bethel, which is the first thing that Jeroboam did was set up these false idols and they never really shook them. So again, just a bunch of things there that you can use that, that they're not part of the inspired account, uh, the, the, you know, these maps and books and commentaries and so on, but they help and they can enhance our understanding 
of the Bible as you try and read it effectively. So our last section here, we're just about out of time. Our last section here is on the versions of the Bible. And again, this could be an entire hour-long session or more. It's probably There's probably university courses that describe how the Bible came to us. And uh, I'm going to put up a graphic here just to hopefully blow your mind. How the Bible came to us. Well, it's quite a long process. And this is a timeline. I'm not going to go through any of this. Uh, just to show you that uh, it's complicated. You know, how did it come down? Here's all our uh, the Bibles that we have here. What manuscripts were used? You know, how did they make decisions about which one should be included and which one shouldn't? Um, it's it's quite an interesting story. Here's a visual that's more um, vertical up and down. So you can see at the bottom here are all the, the ancient uh, copies, um, you know, the Masoretic texts and so on. And you can see there's basically two splits. Here's the Masoretic text and here's the Latin. And so from the Latin came the, the Douay version, which is used by the, the Catholic Church. The Masoretic text and the ancient copies were what Tyndale used. He went right back to the original uh, Hebrew and Greek and translated. Wycliffe there was a translator. He borrowed a little bit from both and so on. And you can see it grew and grew and grew. And here's the King James Bible, 1611, was based on all these ones. And then here's all the modern translations. Some of them, you know, now they were able to, they came a little bit later um, and they were able to bring in some of the Dead Sea Scroll information and, and so on. So there's subtle differences here based on which translation they used. And, and so the two primary ones are the Latin Vulgate and the Received Text or the Masoretic Text. And uh, that's where most of our Bibles come from. Now, we just want to make the point that um, translating from any language to another, either, even to modern languages, uh, can be difficult. And uh, you can see this humorously. There's all kinds of you know, funny translations when people take, uh, you know, their 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 native language, their native modern language, and translate into English, for example. So I'm going to show you an example here of uh, some warnings that came with a set of kitchen knives. And not only did I mention the knives are, are sharp and you need to be careful and so on and so forth, the, the final um, caution was to please keep out of children which obviously would be a very good thing to do if you had a set of knives. You don't want them in your children. Now, I think they meant to say keep out of the reach of children or something like that, but it was lost in translation and simply said, please keep out of children. Certainly a good warning, but not what was intended. And so translating is difficult and, and the Bible is no different. Um, so basically what we want to talk about here is just an awareness of what you've got. We're not going to tell you which translation is best, but just be aware of the various kinds. So um, some translations are very literal. You know, they're word for word. And that sometimes can sound um, a bit more uh, choppy. It's, it doesn't read as nicely. It's not as easy. It doesn't flow kind as well, but tends to be more accurate sometimes. There's dynamic translations, which are more thought for thought. They say, okay, what was meant in the original Greek or the original Hebrew? Well, that was a Hebrew idiom. And so we'll translate it uh, dynamically into an equivalent idiom in English, for example. And they tend to be easier to read and a bit more understandable, but less literal. And of course, then there are paraphrases, which are there's not necessarily any scholarly advice behind them, not looking at meanings of words. They're just trying to give a sense uh, of what the Bible is trying to say or what Jesus is trying to say in his words. And those are ones that are sometimes quite insightful, 
but it's more like a commentary in a way as it's some person's opinion of what those words were meant to mean. Here's a visual of it, the very literal on this end, through dynamic and paraphrase on this end, with some of the very common ones. So King James Version, interlinear, Young's literal up here. Um, the NIV, the Jerusalem Bible here in the, in the middle, uh, dynamic, and then, you know, the message being the most um, classic or well-known one that's a paraphrase, and he, he claims it's a paraphrase. It was a, a person who, you know, had a lot of um, experience working with people, uh, especially on the street, and he wanted to make a Bible that would be very reachable to those kind of people, and it's, you know, for example, it talks about uh, taking casseroles to people who are, are, are in need. Um, that's a, that's gives the idea behind, you know, being nice to other people, but in a way that maybe people understand. So it's a paraphrase. Here's another chart, a graph being a math teacher. I love graphs. So on this vertical axis, we have the readability from easy to read to hard to read and the literalness from very dynamic to very formal. And, and if you want a Bible, that's uh, got familiar words to you, you want something that's high on the readability. So New Living, NIV, New English Translation would be very readable. Um, if you want one that's closer to the original, you want one that's more formal, you'll be down here, King James being the classic. New King James, they've tried to like take out the these and the thou, so it reads less like Shakespeare and more like words we use. Um, but you're getting, it's easier to read, but potentially um, less less literal. So there's there's a, a bit of a chart. Um, now, does does it really matter? Well, here's here's Psalm 23. And just, you know, we just here's the, the King James, which you know is probably the one if you went to, to Sunday school as a, a child or you sang, sang a hymn. This sounds familiar. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures, he leads me beside beside still waters, he restores my soul, he leads me in the paths of righteousness. For his name's sake. We get the sense of that it's maybe comforting because it's so familiar. The NIV's similar. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Very similar. Just maybe smooths out some of the, the ideas. Um, and then here's the message. God, my shepherd, I don't need a thing. You have bedded me down in lush meadows. You find me quiet pools to drink from. True to you, word, you let me catch my breath and send me in the right direction. There you go. That's the, the message. So is there a big deal? Does it really matter? Well, I think you're going to get a sense of any of those. Uh, but if you want to do a word study and, and find connections with other places where similar words, you're going to need the King James or you know maybe the NIV. The concordance is related to the NV, uh, uh, the King James Version. So what's the word pasture mean and where else is it used in the Bible? That's the advantage of the King James. This one gives you the sense, but you're not really going to be able to get study out of the message. Literal or dynamic? Just, you know, it's quite often we think, well, obviously, isn't it better if it's literal? Like exactly what the word in Hebrew means in, in English, literal. Well, here's one. Here's a couple of examples where maybe not. This here is a picture of the famous parable of the Pharisee and the publican, uh, the, the famous seven word prayer. You remember this guy stood up and he was boasting all about himself and all the amazing things and thanking God for making him so awesome. And this man said the seven word prayer says he beat his breast and said, Lord, be merciful to me, a, um, a sinner. Um, that's what the, the publican said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, as he beat his breast. 
Now, um, obviously, he meant remorse or like humility. He's beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me. Well, in this West Zambian language, it's an actual test case. Uh, Chakwiyam, you might say it that way. Uh, to beat your breast is to congratulate yourself. And that's not what Jesus meant as well. And we have that in English as well. You know, someone might do something great, say, yeah, I'm the greatest. You know, we might get that idea. Um, but I guess it's much stronger in this West Zambian language. So in their Bible, um, they translated it dynamically to get the sense as beat his brow, like, oh, God, be merciful to me. Like I've made a mistake. I, you know, we beat our brow, um, which carries the idea of remorse. Now, that's not literally what the Greek meant. The Greek, you look it up, it's beat his breast. But they dynamically dynamically uh, translated it to give the sense. So that as you read that parable, you would know what was meant. Here's a picture of uh, an artist's rendition of Jesus preaching. And we know that Jesus often said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, or truly, truly, I say unto you. Well, in the Philippines, when you repeat yourself, it means you're not so sure. It's like, um, hmm, you know, you repeat yourself because you're not sure. I'm not sure about. So if they read truly, truly, I say to you, it'd be mean, well, I'm not sure about what I'm going to say, but here, I'll give it a shot anyway. And that's the exact opposite of, of Jesus meant. So in a translation in, in uh, the Philippine language, um, they wouldn't repeat the word. Just Jesus said, truly, I say to you, and that would give the sense. And, and even though in the Greek there are two words, it is repeated because it's giving emphasis in Greek and Hebrew. When something's repeated, it gives emphasis, and that's an effective Bible reading uh, tip. If you see something repeated, um, in fact, Joseph, in his interpreting Pharaoh's dream, said, the reason you got two dreams, Pharaoh, is because it comes from God. He's repeated it. To give emphasis that you know. So there's the dream of the cows and there's the dream of the corn. It's repeated so you know it's true. But in the Philippines, it, that may not come across or other languages. So a dynamic translation might be better in those cases. So here's just some examples. So King uh, King James, verily, verily. And I in the middle, I'm telling you the truth. That's what it means. Um, and then the message actually amplifies this a bit more. I'm telling you the most solemn and sober truth. So he's really emphasizing, he's taken this idiom verily, 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 and really expanded on it. King James, let this sink down into your ears. That's literally what the Greek says, sink down into your ears. It's like, well, what does that mean? I think we know a lot of these sayings, especially in the Western world, were so influenced by the, uh, the Bible and its influence on our culture and language that we probably know what sink down into your ears means. Um, but really it means listen carefully. That's what the NIV says. And the message, again, sort of expounding on it and almost giving a, a class on it, says treasure and ponder each of the next words. Uh, Jesus on the cross, they were all insulting him and, and, and uh, casting insults at him. And so it says here, the thieves cast the same in his teeth. That's, I tell you, I don't really know what that means. Um, must be an old English saying to translate from the, the Greek. Uh, so the NIV has heaped insults on him, and the message says joined in the mockery. It's all good. Uh, this phrase comes up a lot in Romans, in the writings of Paul, God forbid, um, which really means not at all, or not on your life, as the message says. And this actually is a, is a good translation with the NIV, and actually more literal, well, more literal. In the, in the Greek, the word God doesn't even appear. So it's, it's an expression of like, let it not be, that there's no way that can happen. 
like in Romans 11, as God cast away his people Israel? No way, not at all. Let it not be. Uh, the King James has God forbid, because I guess in 1611, that was like a solemn, like no way. Uh, but it's actually, I think, wrong because the word God isn't there in the original. So in this case, the NIV and others, more mo most modern translations would have, have something like not at all or by no means. It's a, it's an emphatic statement of, of no. Um, and then this one here, Matthew 9, why do you call me good? Um, that's actually maybe not as accurate as why do you ask me about what is good? Why do you question me about what is good? So again, just be aware of these things. Um, there, there's no, no necessary right answer. So which translation is right for me? Um, as we mentioned at the beginning, we believe the Bible to be wholly inspired by God. It's God breathed, Second uh, Timothy 3.16, in its original languages, and to be completely without error, except due to translation, error, or bias, unintentionally or intentionally. Like when we say things, we're, we're naturally biased by what's in our mind, our experiences, what we've, we've learned. So that's going to come through. And that's true of me and some of the things I've said even in this presentation today. So each person is different, and as such, not all translations are good for the same person. I like the King James. I was brought up with it. It's familiar to me. It's a good study Bible, but my wife likes the NIV. It's a bit easier to understand. The, the language is, is not as confusing. It's more familiar, um, and for the most part, it's a good translation. So you just need to always check it out and compare and, and, and do a little bit of um, you know background checking where you need to. Um, it's recommended that for reading, a version be selected as easy and comfortable for the individual. No sense struggling over words. And if you don't like the these and the thous, find a translation that doesn't have them in it. New King James is a good one. In addition to this, it is desirable to maintain a King James version for use in more detailed study because most of the links to concordances and lexicon, lexicons go back to the King James version. Although there are some coming out for some of the more popular modern translations but the Strong's exhaustive concordance and that what you get on your on your phone um, and the, the software that we were talking about last week would be linked to the King James. So you should keep that kind of there, at least as a study Bible. Anyway, if you have any questions about that, reach out to us. We'd be happy to, to answer those. Now, just some very briefly here, I want to give a bit of a plug for the, the homework for this week. Um, it's classic one, looking at... Uh, maps and words and, and archaeology and it has to do with Sodom and Gomorrah and and um, I'm just going to read this through uh, and then we'll leave it at that as you can see from these three maps this was a, a google map of you know if you google where Sodom and Gomorrah it will come up with something like this sort of at the the southeast corner of the Dead Sea um, a lot of them have here along this ridge all along this ridge of the sort of the west side of the Dead Sea Mostly down near the bottom, here's Masada, a place you can visit. Um, and they, they figure that Sodom is way down here. And then this one here at the top of, of the Dead Sea. As you can see from these three maps, there are a few different opinions on where Sodom and Gomorrah might have once existed. Of course, there's not much there now because they were completely destroyed. Because these cities were obliterated by God, for many centuries, there was no solid evidence as to where they might have been. And it was just assumed it was down here. Maybe that's why the Dead Sea is salty, because it was, you know, in that the fire and brimstone that God sent. Maybe that's what made it salty. So we'll put it down here at the bottom somewhere. If you are a firm believer that the Bible is inspired, the inspired word of God, 
then you read the Bible as though it is God recounting the details, not as though it's man's best guess. So when renowned archaeologist Dr. Stephen Collins set out to discover the ancient cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, he didn't want to follow man's best guess, that is the maps here, the two on the, on the, on the, on the left-hand side, the maps available at the time, he read directly from the text in Genesis 3. Let's see if we can find the clues that led him to the right tell or the right mount. And this one is actually his, sort of giving away a little bit of the, the story here. This comes from um, Rittmeyer Archaeological Design, and, and Lane Rittmeyer is a friend of ours, and he worked with Dr. Stephen Collins to discover where they think Sodom and Gomorrah are at now, and these the, the tells here, and it's actually the north end of the Dead Sea on the east side of the River Jordan over here in the, the modern country of Jordan. There's Jericho just for reference, and Jerusalem will be just up a little bit here uh, to the to the um, north and the and the west. So um, I would suggest if you're interested in that, go ahead and and follow through with that that worksheet and do a little bit of research yourself. It's a matter of looking at maps, reading the Bible as it's recorded in Genesis 13, and looking up some of the words that are used there. So it's a bit of a, an interesting little study. So that's it for week four. So we went a bit longer than normal, but hopefully you found that interesting um, and, and answered maybe uh, provided some answers that you can have for those that might criticize the Bible, um, a, big, a better picture of what God's purpose with the earth is, uh, some of the study tools that you can use, like atlases and, and commentaries, um, and then, of course, about the versions of the Bible and uh, and what might be best for you, at least an understanding of why there are different versions and, and what some of the differences are. So it's uh, my prayer that uh, as you can continue to read God's word, that he will bless you, that you will learn to read it effectively and explore it in, in all the ways and primarily read a little bit each and every day. May it be a guide to your life and a light to your path. So um, until next time, when we will uh, look week five of our six-week series, uh, and we'll look at some more interesting things to learn to read the Bible effectively. So until then, take care and God bless.